Oh, good morning. Some of you know me. Some of you may be less familiar with me, but I'm just glad to be here with you this morning. My connection to this church actually goes pretty far back. One of my first meetings with CPM during my ordination process was here at PCLG. And with my first call at the county jail as a chaplain, you sent volunteers and support for our art and spirit program, if you remember that. And one of my first uh, preaching moments was here, right after Theo was born, and Pastor Dave was taking some time off. Um, now Eric is here, my good friend. I'm over at the terraces. I've been there almost six months. And uh, I just feel like my connection here is going deeper and deeper. Well, I am new to the world of senior living communities. I do have the years of experience at the jail with chaplaincy work and pastoral experience here in our presbytery, but senior living is a unique entity unto itself. And my sense is in the past few months that the terraces is a special place within that entity. There's a sense of community and welcome there that I think is unique. Part of my learning curve has been tailoring spiritual practices for those with dementia, either in its early stages or more advanced cases. The biggest challenge I face is how does someone with advanced dementia experience faith? That question has led me to wonder how much emphasis I put in cognitive reasoning as my faith experience. But let's start off with a little review and then work our way towards a possible answer. Last week, Erica preached from Genesis 12 and Hebrews 11, if you were here. She focused on a few different points, including the story of Abraham and what it means to live by faith in our day and age. She mentioned an author named Kate Bowler who says that self-help has become the new American civil religion. We even touched on New Year's resolutions and how Christian tradition points us to what is called a rule of life. This is a faith-based way that's focused on daily rhythms which invite transformation and growth. Finally, there was also a Venn diagram with reasoning on one side and emotions on the other. The overlap was a space labeled the wise mind in other words, a place of wisdom. It was the diagram that caught my attention. How do we blend reason and emotion to get to that place of wisdom in our faith experience? As Presbyterians, I wonder if we lean too much on our intellect. Historically, as a denomination, we've emphasized the word preached over other practices and we're known as the frozen chosen in worship. Culturally, we favor the mind. We also talk about believing in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Belief in something requires content. Belief without content is simply a sentimental experience at best. I think it takes skill to walk that line between reason and emotion. And I think as Presbyterians, we have our own unique struggles in finding center. 
I've decided that it helps me to think of our faith as an embodied one. We talk about Jesus as being incarnate in the flesh. In some respects, our faith is embodied as well. It doesn't just reside in the mind, the spirit, or the heart. We work out our faith in how we live in the world through our entire physical being. The book of James in the New Testament expounds on the fact that faith without works is dead. We also worship an incarnate redeemer who calls us to carry on his mission. Our minds and emotions are perhaps the starting point, but we live out our faith in our interactions with our community. Now in the context of the terraces, how does someone struggling with cognitive issues live out their faith? What if you find yourself or a loved one with a dementia diagnosis and the body is still alive, but the mind begins to fail? Or those who have experienced a stroke and don't have full control of their mind? What about those with traumatic brain injuries, various disabilities, or those who are born with arrested cognitive development? How does someone without the ability to fully reason for themselves grow in their faith and draw closer to God? What is their contribution to community? In some ways, as caregivers, we make concessions and focused on individualized care and support for those whom we're called to serve. Human Good, the nonprofit owner of the terraces, talks about helping residents live their best lives possible in a way that's centered on the resident. I believe faith practices can go beyond what people receive and also involves what people can give even as they face physical challenges. I see hope, comfort, and dignity in that. In his book, Finding My Way Home, spiritual writer Henri Nouwen talks about a near-death experience he had from a car accident and where it led him in his life of faith. He wonders out loud how many of us consider what he calls fruitfulness of life after death. He mentioned that he frequently heard people talk about how they wanted to live a long life, but they didn't want to deal with declining health. And they worried about being a burden to those around them, as if being cared for was almost more than they could bear. These were looming concerns for those who were ill and aging in his circles of acquaintance. When we talk about end-of-life issues in church, we typically talk about the afterlife. We don't talk about what there is to look forward to as our bodies slow down with age. Jesus frequently talked about his own coming death, but it wasn't just a means to get from this world to another. He saw his death as being fruitful or productive in and of itself. And we'll get to the gospel reading in just a second to talk about that. Death was not the end for him, but a means to something bigger. He understood that the outcome of his incarnate ministry would be greater after his passing than during his life on earth. The gospel reading comes from the Gospel of John today, chapter 14. The section we'll be focusing on is part of Jesus' longest continuous speech in the book 
with an emphasis on his, in his coming departure. It's known as the farewell discourse, and it's a conversation with his disciples in the context of a shared meal as Jesus' ministry comes to a close. These are not the words of a dying man. It is a discourse by one who knows he will be resurrected to new life. But the crisis in all of this will be the disciples experiencing his death. But they will feel the loss only for a little while. Part of the conversation is that Jesus will see them again, but things are changing. He also promises them the presence of another, the Holy Spirit, referred to as the advocate, an intercessor, or helper. This advocate will not replace Jesus, but will serve as a witness and teacher to continue the work of Jesus through his followers. God will be present, but in new ways. So let me read John 14, verses 25 to 31. Jesus says this as he is talking with his disciples. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs so that when it does occur, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us be on our way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If I could narrow our focus to verse 26, Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will teach them everything and remind them of the things Jesus said. There was more to come after his death. It was good for them that he was leaving for the Father. It also brings to mind the Great Commission found at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends to heaven, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Living a life of faith and productivity is possible within health challenges and even beyond death, but the focus is outward, not on ourselves. As we need help and support, we create opportunities for those around us to serve and extend care. One such opportunity for caregivers is to know how to be with someone grieving their losses, including their independence. An answer based in reason doesn't help an emotional state. Empathy helps an emotional state. Second, for those of us on the receiving end of caregiving, our willingness to let people help and care for us is an act of faith. 
Accepting help can be one of the most difficult things that we do, but it's needed in the life of a community. Our needs create ministry opportunities for others. This goes beyond a memory care unit in a retirement community. What about those who wonder if they're being punished by God for something when their health begins to fail? If they felt they had the support of the community and were less alone, would they feel differently about God? Also think of couples where one person struggles to show vulnerability to the other, or those who have difficulty grieving in community, afraid of showing weakness. The list of vulnerabilities we try to hide from each other can go on and on. It is an act of faith to be vulnerable with each other and to seek help. That act helps build community. It's an embodied faith, not simply an intellectualized one. Now one goes on to say that by not resisting weakness and by gratefully receiving another's care, we call forth community and provide our caregivers an opportunity to give their own gifts of compassion, care, love, and service. He also calls death the ultimate moment of weakness, but perhaps the greatest one for fruitfulness. There's meant to be a legacy of love and investment in people that lives on after our death. I've shared this coming personal illustration before with my folks at the terraces. So for those of you who are listening from TLG, my apologies for the repetition, but I believe it deserves repeating here. I saw in my two grandmothers two different responses to their declining health. In her last years, my maternal grandmother lived next door to my family in a small apartment. It was easy to run a dinner plate over to her, check on her regularly, and it also meant there was an extra bathroom available for our large family. This was something grandma thought was particularly funny. I was maybe 15 or 16 when she asked for help one day in washing her big front window. I went and got the hose and started the process. Afterwards, she tried to give me money for the effort, and I turned it down. I wasn't doing it for the payment. This was grandma, she was family. You just did things like that for family. When I refused it, she became emotional and started crying. What came out was this embarrassment and frustration that she had to be so dependent on other people in her old age. She wanted to compensate me for the work so she felt less dependent. She missed being self-reliant and her weakness was shameful to her. In that moment, I didn't know how to help her or what to say to make it better. I wish she'd understood how much I valued and loved her. Her presence was irreplaceable. It was both an opportunity to teach me how to be with someone in distress and to wash her window. She also didn't see her need as an opportunity for me to learn and to serve. She was in pain and her focus was on that pain, but there was more going on in the moment than what she saw. My paternal grandmother lived an entirely different experience. She was also fiercely independent, 
I remember a conversation with my cousin at one point that grandma was not going to have an easy time transitioning from assisted living to skilled nursing. Well, not long afterwards, she fell while rushing to the phone. So let that be a lesson, do not rush to the phone. She broke her arm and her leg in the fall and ended up in rehab, and then ultimately skilled nursing. She stopped the physical therapy because of the pain level and never walked again or returned to her original apartment. Rather than fighting it, her response was, well, it's time for me to be taken care of. Her dignity was not wrapped up in her independence. And that statement was the extent of her transition process. She surprised all of us. And she lived for several more years in that nursing home. One grandmother was unable to come to terms with her decline. If I had been more mature, I would have been able to put some listening skills to work and empathize with her in a way that perhaps helped her feel better. That was the opportunity she created for me and washing the window. The other grandmother integrated change from her declining health to the best of her ability. She readily accepted help from family and the staff at the nursing home. <coughs> and I have learned from both examples their lives have been fruitful beyond their passing. They both invested in me and loved me. Finally, the Gospel of John was not our only reading for today. We also read from the book of Genesis. In that passage, we are told the story of Abraham's son, Isaac, the one who was almost sacrificed as a boy. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, and their grown sons, Esau and Jacob, are also part of the story. Isaac is older now, and his eyesight isn't what it used to be. He also seems limited in his mobility, as we don't hear of him leaving his tent. He realizes death could come soon. He calls on Esau, his favorite son, with a passion for the wilderness and hunting and he asks Esau to hunt down and prepare his favorite meal for him. Esau heads out to do so. Rebekah overheard the conversation and convinces Jacob to trick his father and steal Esau's blessing. The plan works and Jacob receives the blessing shortly before Esau returns. The deception is brought to light and the family implodes. Jacob has to leave home to avoid being killed by Esau, and he never sees his parents again. I'm sure it also drove a wedge between Isaac and Rebekah in their final years. But Isaac had it right. He called on his family to serve him in his infirmity. His sons and wife got the response wrong, but Isaac understood his place in his family and within God's covenant. He had ways of being a blessing to those around him. In short, be like Isaac, not Jacob. So as we conclude this morning, there are a few points I wanna make sure we take home. <coughs> First, our faith doesn't just reside in the mind or the emotions. The mind is perhaps the starting point, 
but faith is embodied through our physical bodies as a whole. Second, for those with cognitive limitations, it is an act of faith to place yourself in someone else's care. As difficult as that vulnerability is, you create opportunities for others to care for and serve you in a way that helps them grow in their faith. Third, the love we give people influences them long after we're gone. Death doesn't undo the ripple effect of our love. Finally, be like Isaac, not Jacob. So as you go about your week, be looking for ways to serve and ways to be vulnerable with those around you. Faith involves an outward-facing experience, too, not just an inward belief. Amen.